If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Psalm 12. We will continue our summer through the Psalms. And uh, this morning, as you are turning there, I'd like you to, to think with me just at the, the history of our nation. There have been many great speeches spoken by great men that have captured the hearts of Americans. And you may not necessarily be familiar with the entirety of a speech, but you're probably very familiar with one or two lines in a speech that would spark your memory. Uh, Abraham Lincoln began the Gettysburg Address with what? Four score, seven years ago, our forefathers. FDR very famously said that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. John F. Kennedy, uh, in a very famous speech, he says, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I wasn't going to try the New York, uh, New England accent uh, on that, but uh, it's a very distinct voice that he had. Martin Luther King Jr. says, I have a dream. And again, you may not be familiar with every single word of that speech, but you can immediately hear any one of those lines and know the context. Also, something that uh, we just celebrated this week, 50 years ago, Neil Armstrong being the first man to step foot on the moon. And what was it that he said? One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Every one of those speeches was memorable. And every one of those men spoke those words in order to, to encourage, in order to, to bring hope, in order to, to provide a, a direction Comfort, encouragement, motivation to our nation to try and spark us to action. And in those words, all of those speeches, we see that words can be very powerful. Words have a, an ability to move us, to give us comfort and hope. They can seemingly bring life into our bones. Yet words are also capable of other things. Words are also capable of leading us in an entirely different direction. They are capable of tearing down rather than building up. And what's amazing, if you look at during the time of World War II, there were two very great orators in Europe. One of them was leading Germany into World War II. One of them was, was leading Germany into a war of aggression. Adolf Hitler. And there was Winston Churchill, who was trying to instill hope to a nation on the verge of destruction. Both of them turned to words, both of them used words to motivate their nation. But we see that words are capable of being perverted. They're capable of being misused. And it has been said that those things that are the highest and the finest are most susceptible to being tainted and corrupted. If you think of precious metals, of gold and silver, when they are purified, any little impurity in them taints them and changes their value. And that is how it is with human speech. It is prone to being defiled. And the perversion of human speech is a common experience in all of our lives. Now, it's easy for us to identify those occasions when others have used angry or slanderous speech against us, right? Those are easy to come to mind. But we also need to, to remember that we also are guilty of using words in this way. That we also can use words to tear others down rather than build them up. James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says, Speaking of our tongue says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And as we come to Psalm 12 in our study, we, we come to a psalm about human speech. James Montgomery Boyce, great pastor, in Philadelphia said, this psalm is about the use and abuse of words. Words are both our glory and our shame, is what he says. And as we look at this psalm, 
we see that we're not necessarily given a context to it. We're not told the background of when David wrote this psalm, of who was attacking him, who was using words against him. We're not told that. But what I'd like to do for a second is think of the, the greater picture and the greater context of the entire Psalter, all 150 psalms. Oftentimes we come to the book of Psalms and we kind of see it as a random song book where uh, you know, God took 150 songs and kind of just threw them together uh, and then we just get, get the peace through them. Uh, but what we actually have is a song book that's actually made up of five different books. If you, if you look, turn over the pages to Psalm 1, you'll see above Psalm 1 it says Book 1. If, if you go look at Psalm 42, you'll see Book 2 begins there. If you look at Psalm 73, you see Book 3 begins there. Psalms 90 and 106 also begin other books in the Psalter. And what we actually have when we come to the book of Psalms is a collection of Psalms that at one point later on, after they were all written, we have somebody who was the editor, or you could say, you could call him the Psalms shaper. So he took these 150 songs, he said, let me gather them together and collect them and then put them in a particular order. So that there is a theme throughout each one of the individual books in the, the Psalter. And as we are in book 1, which is Psalms 1 through 41, we have King David as the central figure. And as we look at the life of King David, we see him over and over again facing difficulties, facing trials, being attacked, having to run for his life, being slandered against, being conspired against, all of these life experiences. And the whole point of book 1 in the Psalter is to show King David as the model of what it looks like to trust in the Lord in difficult circumstances. If you want to know how to do that, read Psalms 1 through 41 and look at what David does. As we read these Psalms, we see what it means to trust in God's person, works, and word for deliverance in any and every circumstance. We see the meaning of faith. We see the meaning of walking with God, in the middle of all of our trials, in the middle of all of our affliction, when those are slandering against us or attacking us physically or conspiring against us, the Psalms teach us how to turn to God in faith. And that is especially what we have seen in the last three Psalms, 9, 10, and 11. And we have more of the same in Psalm 12, as David once again turns to God in prayer in times of trial and affliction. Look with me at Psalm 12. Let's read it all through together. Eight verses, but I'll begin in the title. It says, To the choir master, according to the Sheminis, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. And what we see is... King David, or maybe shepherd boy David, running for his life. We don't know when this was written. What we see is David complaining and crying out to God about the cultural climate of his day. Saying that those who were faithful to God were disappearing, while at the same time the wicked seemed to be increasing in the land. And in this psalm, David's going to compare the flattering and prideful words of the men of his day with the pure and true word of God. And as we read this psalm, we see that there's really nothing new under the sun. David's com complaining about the cultural climate of his time, and it's very easy for us to do the same, is it not? 
Doesn't it seem like wickedness is increasing in our world today? We also see that what David does, we should do. He compared the word of man to the word of God. And we are called to do the same. But what does this comparison of words achieve for David and for us? What we're going to see in these eight verses are four insights spoken about the word of man in the world and the word of God written before you and sitting in Scripture. As we compare these two types of words, we're going to see four insights that are going to be timeless and truthful, both in David's time and in our own. But look with me at insight number one. It's found in verses one and two. This insight is that we live in a world that uses words to deceive others. Look with me again at those verses. It says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. And the heading of this psalm, again, shows that it was written by David. Uh, and that little phrase, according to the Sheminith, uh, really is kind of according to the octave. It's giving instructions to the music director. Again, this is a song that was intended to be sung in corporate worship. But after that heading, David begins this psalm just with a simple, a simple prayer. It's three words in English. It's only two words in Hebrew. Save, O Lord. What a short and sweet prayer that is. Something that can be offered up at any given time by God's people. And David offers up that short prayer. And then he explains why salvation is needed. He says, save, O God. And then he, he gives his rationale. God, this is why you need to save. This is why you need to act. It says, for the godly one is gone. And for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. David is lamenting the passing away of those who worship and follow Yahweh in Israel. David gets this feeling inside him that he's the only one who's following after God. You guys ever feel that way? That that you are completely surrounded by those who are against you. That you are the the only one who's swimming upstream. You're going countercultural to the world and you feel it. And sometimes that... That makes you feel alone. And David's words here are probably more exaggeration than reality. Saying that there is no one left. That the godly one, the individual, is gone. And that the faithful as a whole have vanished from among the children of man. And in David's words here, we, we hear echoes of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 18, Elijah had this great victory over the, the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And then he immediately runs for his life when he finds out that Queen Jezebel is coming after him, trying to take his life. And he runs all the way to Mount Sinai, and he's there hiding away. And this is what he says to God, First Kings 19, verse 10. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I... Even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. David feels that same way. He feels like he's the only one following after God. And he feels this way because of how the world around him is using words to flatter and deceive. And this is explained in verse 2, that everyone utters lies to his neighbor. And that, that word for lies is the idea of speaking emptiness, of speaking vanity, of speaking those things that are false. Since everybody is speaking this way, then additionally he says that with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. And words that flatter, the idea of words that are smooth, words that are slippery. And that's what flattering is, of trying to, to puff up your neighbor, to instill within them pride. So they speak with flattery and then they, they speak with a, a double heart. They, they speak with duplicity. They say one thing and mean another. That they choose to speak lies. Like, why tell the truth when a lie will accomplish the same goal? That that's the attitude that David is seeing and experiencing in his own time. And when that is the situation, when you feel that way, who can you trust? Where do you go for hope? 
when you feel like everybody around you is going to lie. This is a common problem in our world today, probably even more than we normally think about. Because everywhere that we turn, people are trying to deceive us. People are trying to get us to make a decision. And if you doubt what I'm saying, just think of how many advertisements you see all the way uh, around your life. From your smartphones, as you're driving around, what are those advertisers trying to do? They're trying to influence you to buy their product. Every time you turn on the news, what is the news trying to do? To influence you to believe something or to reinforce what you already believe. News agencies will say anything to capture your attention. And there's a, a long list of examples of, of news agencies making up stories just to get attention, just to create a buzz. And then there's the all popular fake news on social media today, right? Can you really trust anything that you see on social media? And the correct answer is no. And our culture seeks also to change the words that we use so as to influence us in the way that we think and the decisions that we make. They want to change the words in order to change the logic. Some of you may have heard about uh, these state legislatures passing what's known as heartbeat bills uh, in certain states around our nation. Uh, and these, these heartbeat bills are intended to create uh, kind of a, a limit to when abortions can take place. Uh, these heartbeat bills say that once, once you can detect the baby's heartbeat, and there should be no abortions beyond that point. But what's, what's amazing is that back in May, when the New York Times was running a story on Louisiana's heartbeat bill, rather than using the term heartbeat, which, which implies personhood, it implies that that baby is a living, breathing person. Right? If it has a, a heart and a heartbeat. But listen to the words that the, the, the New York Times used. Instead of saying the baby's heartbeat, they, they use the euphemism embryonic pulsing. Right? And again, those are two, two conflicting things. Which one is it? And those words are used intentionally to deceive, to present a case that the baby inside the womb is not really a person. And in the, in the news article, rather than saying that the bill prohibits abortion once the baby's heartbeat is detected, this is what the article says, that the bill will ban abortion after the pulsing of what becomes the fetus's heart can be detected. Again, if you, if you change the words, you change the logic. Our culture around us is always trying to deceive, always trying to shape the way that we think, always trying to to flatter us and to speak with duplicity, saying one thing and meaning another. And many of us have, have felt the sting of lies and flattery. Many of us have been the subjects of that. We have been deceived by the world in general or by individuals in the world. And it's very painful when that happens, is it not? People use words against us. And, and in this psalm, it's amazing that the essence of evil here is not actions but words people using words to tear down charles spurgeon says that the psalmist sees the extreme danger of his position for a man had better be among lions than among liars and sometimes that is exactly how we feel yeah, i'd rather be with rather be thrown into the lion's den with daniel than have to go and deal with people i cannot trust or who will lie and speak against me we can give a hearty amen to that. But again, we also must see and understand that as Christians, what are we also tempted to do? We're tempted to do the same. We, we saw that, as I read earlier in James chapter 3. But if this is what characterizes the world, this is what can be said of the world, that everybody utters lies, that everybody seeks to flatter, and they speak with duplicity in their heart, what should characterize us as Christians? Yeah. We are called to speak the truth. We are called to imitate the God who is the truth speaker. We are called to let our yes be yes and our no to be no. We, we cannot speak this way. We, we cannot be characterized in the same way as the world. And this first insight that we, that we gain from this psalm, that the, that the world uses words to deceive others. It feels like 
wickedness and deception are ever increasing. It only feels that way because it is that way. And what do we do with that? How do we respond? Well, David's going to get there. But before he gets there, he says, wait, there's, there's one other way that the, the world around us uses words to attack and to destroy. The first way is to deceive. And the second way that human words can be perverted for evil purposes is that they are used to empower and to prevail upon others. Insight number two found in verses 3 and 4, is that we live in a world that uses words to empower themselves. Look with me at those verses. David continues, he says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. May the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? So David, after outlining the deception that is so prevalent in society around him, he laments his own culture, and then he prays. He says, Lord, end all of that. Lord, cut off all of the flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Lord, put an end to such things. Flattery and pride here in verse 3 are connected, which is quite the the insight that David gives us. He makes this connection between flattery and pride and really saying that flattery seeks to create pride in others. When you, when you try and flatter somebody, you're, you're going to speak to their good points to get them to, to be puffed up. And you're seeking to manipulate them, to get them to do something, to, to be what you want them to be. So flattery seeks to create pride in others. And pride is really just flattering yourself, right? As the saying goes, don't flatter yourself. This is the idea here that both are connected. And in verse 4, we see that David continues his prayer of cut off all the flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, and those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail. So David is, is now beginning to say this is the characteristic of those who, who use words to deceive and to to empower themselves. That, that word prevail is, is literally, literally the idea of gaining strength. So what, what these boasters are saying, that with our tongue, with our mouth, with our speech, with our words, we will gain strength. We will gain power. And we see that so often. You can easily think of occasions where others have used words to tear other people down. Uh, and oftentimes... Yeah, we can easily tell when somebody is being prideful and, and, and boasting, right? Uh, and we kind of see that that's ugly. Nobody likes when somebody is kind of always bragging. But a more subtle way that accomplishes the same goal is if I, rather than boasting about myself, if I, if I tear everybody else down, there's the same net effect. you ever think about that? Because when I boast about myself, I elevate myself above everybody else. But if I tear everybody else down, who's still standing higher? Me. And the two go hand in hand. And David is here praying against that. He says, Lord, those who think that they will gain strength through their words, and those who use words in order to gain power, who tell lies and deceive, flatter, ultimately they deceive themselves. And the reason that they deceive themselves is because they've come to a conclusion. And that conclusion is found in that second line of verse 4. The first line says, those who, who say, with our tongue we will prevail. They've said, the tongue is, is where my source of strength comes from. But then look what it says, that our lips are with us. The idea of my lips are my own, or our lips are our own. And then that last statement is, who is master over us? The idea of those who are boastful and, and prideful, those who are willing to use words to elevate themselves or to tear others down, what is their mindset? Their master is themselves. They look to themselves as being God. They have no Lord but themselves. And because of their pride, they are tempted and willing to attack others, to use words as weapons. And they might even be willing to use words to attack others the Lord. 
to speak out against him. Uh, French atheist Voltaire, he echoed the prideful boasting of verse 4. This is what he said. He said, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. He says, my single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. And he wrote that. And in 50 years, no one would remember Christianity. That's what he said. But the year he wrote that, the British Museum paid the Russian government $500,000 for a Bible manuscript while one of Voltaire's books was being sold for eight cents in the London markets. And 50 years after his boast, ironically, the house in which Voltaire wrote those words was owned and being operated out of by the Geneva Bible Society. When Voltaire was on his deathbed, his physician reported these to be his last words. He said, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months to live. Then I shall go to hell and you will go with me. The nurse who was caring for him at that time said this. He said, for all the wealth in Europe, I will not see another infidel die. Meaning another person who did not know Christ. That was the attitude and the mindset of famous atheist Voltaire. And yet what is so sad is that the world around us has embraced the thought process of Voltaire. They have embraced the attitude that we see here in verses 3 and 4. They have begun to believe that their words are what give them power. That their words are what is Lord, that they themselves are their own master. And as long as they have their words, no one can overcome them. This is a very popular, popular way of thinking in our own day. An idea known as expressive individualism. Right? It's, a, it's a championed everywhere we look in our culture. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, what matters most. Whatever you say you are. Expressive individualism is exactly what we see here. That nobody else can tell me what to think or what to say or who to be. None of, none of that matters. Only what we say matters. And we have this, this thought and this idea in our culture that if you speak it, it's therefore true. And this idea of expressive individualism. And they claim that, that history will judge them to be right. But they dismiss the fact that there is a judge over all of human history. And it's not them. It's Jesus. And Christ will one day judge the thoughts and intentions of every human heart in addition to judging our actions. It's quite the sobering thought. And if we, on that day, trust in our own works and in our own words to justify us, if we say, no, my words will be what save me because they are my master then ultimately we will be condemned. We view ourselves as our own saviors. We will fall far short of what Christ has called us to. Because our words and our works aren't measured by other people. We can't look to this and say, yeah, man, the, the culture is in decline and we can compare ourselves to the culture and the world around us and say, I'm better than them. We always love to make that comparison, right? Right? I always love to say everybody else is far worse than I am. I was continuing to read uh, this biography of John Payton. Uh, and he, he speaks about this, this tendency of comparing ourselves to others. And he says that the, the cannibals on one island compared themselves to the cannibals on another island. He says, oh, we're not like those other cannibals. We don't eat the bones. And you're like, wow, this is our natural human tendency to compare ourselves to others and to puff ourselves up, to think that our words empower us, but ultimately when we think that words empower us, we ultimately deceive ourselves. Because again, if we trust in our, in our own works and in our own words, we will be condemned in the final day. When we stand before the judge of human history, we can't trust in ourselves, we must trust in Him. 
We're called to place our faith and our trust not in what we have said and what we have done, but in the words and work of Jesus. Our works condemn us, but the words and work of Jesus give us life. If you haven't done that, if you're still trusting in yourself, you are going to be like Voltaire. You're going to think that your words will set you free. You're going to make bold proclamations, but the prophecies of Voltaire don't really stand up to the course of human history, do they? Oh, in fact, just the opposite. That we are called to look to Christ in faith. To trust not in our words, but in the word of God. And if you, if you are here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ, if you are still relying upon yourself, if you still think that you are your own master, I would beg with you, I would plead with you to abandon hope in yourself and to look to Christ. Look to His finished work on the cross. He went to the cross, even though He was innocent, to absorb and, and pay the penalty for your sins. And now we are called to look to Him in faith. And when we do that, we are forgiven. We are given new life. And we no longer trust in ourselves as our own master, but in Him. That is who we are called to follow. And if we are following Christ, if we recognize Him as master over us, then may we never be guilty of the the first two perversions that we see here. Of how the world uses words. To deceive, to flatter, to speak with duplicity. May we never view or use our words as a source of power over others. May we never believe that our words make us into our own masters. May we never use false words to unrighteously build ourselves up or seize power. As Christians, we know who our master is and we are called to follow him, forsaking our own desires, taking up our cross daily. And walking as he walked. This is the point that the psalmist is making. Looking at human words. And this is also the turning point in the song. So this is how the world uses words. But now he's going to shift gears and compare the, the, the words of men to the words of God. This is what leads us to, to insight number three, which is seen in verses five and six. And we have a God who uses words to promise redemption. Look at me at those two verses. It says, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. And the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. This is a, where, where David's thoughts begin to, to change. And what we have here in verse 5 is really God speaking. And God explains his reasons before he explains his intentions. The first two lines in verse 5, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, those are the two reasons that God says he is now going to act. God is aware of what is going on, the plight of his people. He's aware of the needy and the poor being devastated and attacked. God sees and knows all. And because he sees that, he's not just going to sit idly by and allow those things to take place. He's going to begin to work. That's where he says in the second half of verse 5, he says, I will now arise. And I will place him in the safety for which he longs. God is speaking of, hey, now I'm going to act. And now he is going to deliver. And if you look at that, that word for safety at the end of verse 5, God says, I will place him, speaking of the poor, speaking of the needy, that I will place him in the safety for which he longs. And that's that same Hebrew word that David spoke in his simple prayer In verse 1, David's simple prayer, Save, O Lord, is now being answered. David cried out for help, and now we have God saying, Okay, now I'm going to help you. Now, that for which you long, safety, deliverance from your current situation, that is what God is now promising. And we can rest assured, again, that as, as we cry out to God, He hears our prayers, and as 
As Charles Spurgeon has said, is nothing moves a father like the cries of his children. And when we cry for help, God is sure to answer that call. I was thinking last night as my children are homesick with my wife this morning, uh, that yeah, when I know my child is in distress, that gets me out of bed in the middle of the night. And it gets me out of bed quickly. Not always coherently, but it gets me out of bed quickly. Uh, and, and I rush to their room. And I go to them when I feel that they are in distress. And that is what we, what we see here. The loving Father heart of God. Responding to the prayers of His children. But what does it mean when, when God is, is saying this? That's a big promise, right? That I will place Him in the safety for which He longs. What does that mean? Because it's not every single occasion that God immediately plucks us out of our difficult situation and puts us somewhere else. Like sometimes we're in difficult situations for quite some time. Sometimes we have to endure much persecution and much affliction. So what does it mean when God promises safety? Well, what that means is that God promises safety according to His plan and His purposes. And not necessarily according to our timetable, not necessarily according to the way that we want to be delivered, but God will bring us out of that, or He will preserve us in our circumstances. That wherever we are, whatever circumstance we are facing, that God will preserve us in the middle of that. He won't allow those circumstances to overwhelm us. That God will preserve us here on the earth, and ultimately that He will preserve us eternally in the salvation that He has promised us in heaven. That is what is promised here when, when God says, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. What's emphasized here, Dale Ralph Davis says, is the stress of these verses is not on the immediacy of the relief, but on the certainty of the word. And we don't know how or when, but we know that we can trust in God's word. And that is the next point that, that David makes in verse 6. So verse 5, we have God speaking and saying, Now I'm going to act because I'm aware of the suffering of my people. Now I'm going to stand up and I'm going to act on their behalf. And then we have David reflecting upon what is said in verse 5. In verse 6, David reflects upon the trustworthiness of God's word. He says that the words of the Lord are pure words. If you think back, just comparing this to what he said about the words of man. The words of man were empty, hollow. They, they speak lies. They flatter. They speak with a duplicitous heart. But God's word is pure. God's word is true. And then David uses this illustration of God's word being like silver that has been refined to perfection. It says that it's been purified seven times. You know, the number seven in scriptures, the number of perfection. So in saying that, hey, God's word is like silver purified seven times, he says there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. There's no impurities to be found. There's nothing where you can say, oh, no, that's wrong in God's word. It's nothing that you can point to. When we come to scripture, we have something that we can trust and cling to wholeheartedly at all times. That God's Word can always be trusted and accepted. It can always be looked to for hope and comfort and always turned to in times of distress and anguish. And oftentimes that's something that we know intellectually. If I just asked you guys on a pop quiz, like, hey, do you believe that God's Word is trustworthy? Pretty much everyone here would be like, absolutely. One word answer to an essay question. Completely. So you know the right answer, but then in our day-to-day -day lives, do we really live that way? Do we really turn to God's Word as what we need most? Do we really turn to God's Word as what will bring us hope? Or how frequently do we seek to, to supplement God's Word? God's Word, you say, God, you say this, but I know in my own wisdom I need to add a little something to that. There's a, a famous monastery, and it's also a palace and a, a university in Spain, it's just northwest of Madrid, and it's known as the El Escorial Monastery. And it was commissioned by King Philip and built between 1563 and 1584. And the architect who designed the building, he put in uh, an arch that was so flat that when the king saw this arch, he says, Whoa, that's going to fall down. 
you need to put a column in the center of that arch. And the architects said, no, 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 trust me, it's going, it's going to stand firm. And the king says, no, 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 I, I don't trust you. That thing is going to fall down. And so the king demanded that the architect build a column in the middle of this arch to make sure that it was supported. And so the architect says, okay, I'll do that. And so he built the column. But then years later, the architect revealed that the column that he built was actually a quarter of an inch short. So that there was a space between the column and the arch. And you can go there today. If you go there for a tour, the tour guide will take something and they'll, they'll climb up and they'll, and they'll pass something between the top of the column and that arch to show that that architect was right. That the king should have trusted in the architect's word that that arch would hold. And oftentimes that is what we try and do with God's word. So God's word says this, but let me do something else to try and support it. I don't necessarily trust that it's going to hold me up. But God's word doesn't need additional support. We simply have to trust in the pure, refined word of God that is able to give us hope and help in every and any circumstance that we face in life. Again, Charles Spurgeon, speaking about criticism of the Bible in his own day. What Spurgeon says for 150 years ago, still proves true today. He says, The Bible has passed through the furnace of persecution, literary criticism, philosophical doubt, and scientific discovery, and has lost nothing but those human interpretations which clung to it as alloy to precious ore. The experience of saints has tried it in every conceivable manner, but not a single doctrine or promise has been consumed in the most excessive heat. God's word is purified and tried, and it comes out showing itself to be true. And this, this visualization, this picture of metals being refined, again, this is also the beauty of the Psalms. And you, as, you, as you read multiple Psalms in a row, you begin to see how they're connected, and there's overlapping themes, because what do we see in, in Psalm 11? If you look in verses 4 and 5 in Psalm 11, we see this same type of picture of metals that are being tested and refined. It says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the idea of refining and purifying precious metal. His eyelids test the children of man. And the Lord tests the righteous. So last week of showing us that the Lord purifies all of us, that He puts us in trials and circumstances, and what comes out? If you're a believer, you are purified. The impurities get taken away. If you're an unbeliever, you go through the fire of judgment. What we see here is another illustration of purification. Is that God's Word is what is already pure. It can go through the purification process and no other impurities come out. This is why we must trust the Scriptures at all times. We see that God uses His Word not to tear up, tear down, but to build up. He promises redemption with His Word, contrary to what men use words for. Man uses words to deceive and deceive others and empower themselves, but God uses His words to save. And then lastly, the fourth insight that we see in this psalm in verses 7 and 8 that we have a God who guards His people in the world. Look at me at verses 7 and 8. It says, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. So as David continues to reflect upon the the character of God, the, the Word of God, the works of God, David has arrived at this final conclusion. We see this in verse 7. After thinking through and contemplating all of this, David says this, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. David uses two different words there that mean the exact same thing. He says, You will keep them, speaking of the needy and the poor who are being attacked and plundered, persecuted, You will keep them. It says, you will guard us. 
The keeping and the guarding, two different words, but they have the exact same meaning. The idea of watching over someone to protect them. This is the conclusion that David comes to, that God, you are here to guard and watch over and protect your people. And what's even more amazing and beautiful is that David comes to this conclusion in light of verse 8. So David's saying, hey God, I know that you will keep us, that you will guard your people. And then, look at what David says in verse 8. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. The, the, the wicked are walking about, is literally what it says. And the idea is that they're, they're strutting. They're, they're, they can go wherever they want. They can do whatever they want. And he explains why this is possible. Why is it that the wicked can just prowl about anywhere they want to go? Why is it they can surround the righteous? Well, he explains it. As vileness is exalted among the children of man. More and more, as our society exalts the wrong things, as they call good evil and evil good, what is going to become more and more widely accepted in the world? The perversion of words, the attacking of so much of that represents righteousness as vileness is exalted among men the wicked will be emboldened and they will seek to prowl and there won't be anything that we can do to stop them and you're like man that's kind of depressing david like why why do you end on that note like i liked verse seven but verse eight kind of gets me back to square one kind of has me once again saying well it seems like the wicked are increasing and the righteous are decreasing. If on every side the wicked are allowed to, to prowl and to, to strut about, that sounds depressing. How does that give me hope? How does that give me comfort? It's not comforting, nor does it put my mind at ease to be told that I'm being surrounded and ready to be attacked. Nobody would sleep well in those circumstances. But as we look at verse 8, we can't forget verse 7. And we have to hold them together because this is the truth. Even though the wicked strut about, even though wickedness is increasing in the world around us, verse 7 still holds true. Even though we are surrounded by a world that is growing more and more hostile to God, we can rest assured that God still guards us and keeps us. That he will still watch over us according to his plan and his purposes. Now that is comforting, isn't it? That is what is good to know and what we are called to trust in. There is a truth to cling to in times of trouble when we feel surrounded. This is the truth that brought David hope. And this is the truth that is intended to bring us hope. That though the wicked prowl about on every side, God still holds us fast in his mighty hand. And nothing can remove us from his hand. We have to notice that at the end of this psalm, David has hope. Even though his circumstances haven't changed. You realize that? Circumstances are exactly the same at the end of this psalm as they are at the beginning of this psalm. So what is it that's changed for David? He has confidence in the end because he has an inner conviction that even though men are using words to attack and tear down, God is using words to keep him safe, to build him up, to guard him, to watch over him. And it is the word of God that will stand true. It is the word of God that is pure. It's the word of God that needs no other support. And it is the word of God that we are called to trust in. At all times, when we are attacked with depraved speech, we must look to divine speech for hope. Amen? Let us pray. Almighty God, Lord, you know our hearts and you know our minds. You know our circumstances. You know what each and every person here is enduring. And Lord, I pray that you would guard over us and watch us. 
that you would protect us according to your will, according to your purposes, that you would use suffering and trials in our lives to mold us and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus. Or that you would strengthen us to endure, not because we trust in ourselves, not because we trust in our own words and our own cleverness, but Lord, because we trust in the pure and unshakable word that you have given to us. Lord, we pray that you would encourage our hearts with your word at this time, whatever we are going through. Lord, that you would give us hope in the middle of a world that is growing more hostile towards us. But Lord, I would also pray that you would help us to see and examine our own hearts. Lord, where are we guilty of speaking lies and uttering deceit? Where are we guilty of using words to empower ourselves, to exalt ourselves over others? Lord, shine a light into our hearts and show us all of the ways that we have thought of our own selves as masters of our lives rather than submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Lord, show us all of these things within ourselves and help us to forsake them. May we confess and may we repent and may we draw near to you once more. And may you hold us fast in this world. And Lord, even while the world is prowling around us, seeking to attack us, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be salt and light. That you would help us not to respond in turn. That you would help us to speak the truth in love and faithfully proclaim the gospel. Lord, help us to be ambassadors for Christ and to faithfully uphold the stewardship that has been entrusted to us. Lord, we long to glorify you in our lives, whether that would be standing fast in the middle of trials, not returning sin for sin, but turning the other cheek, because that is what you have called us to do. Lord, empower us today by your Spirit and answer our prayers that we offer up to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.